We're going to be, as Mike said, taking a look at the church this morning and wanted to begin and we're going to, one of the things we are going to be talking about in this is prayer and I want to start off with prayer but I also want to bring a special prayer request to you because uh, at summertime I'll tell you our pastors, we tend to get around different places and you never know who's where on which Sunday and um, today we have um, actually Pastor Tom has been up teaching at Camp Spofford up in New Hampshire You'll never guess what Tom has been teaching on for the week. The book, fishing. He's been doing a lot more of that than teaching, but um, yeah, the book of numbers. So, um, but, and Pastor John is in Beirut, Lebanon right now. Um, they just arrived yesterday. Uh, we have a team over there. But what I want to pray for, I, I just heard this, um, that the team that we send over there, we're teaching the same group of Syrian, young Syrian leaders each time. This is the third out of a four-part series. Um, I've been over there on the last two, and it's, um, I'll tell you, you just, learn, you, just, you just grow to love these young Syrians. And um, one of the towns in Syria called Sueda is um, home to three of the participants that come to our training conferences. And I just heard that a couple days ago, I think it might have been like on Thursday or Friday, that um, ISIS went into Sueda and just randomly went into homes and killed several hundred um, in, the, in the town of Sueda. The three from our training conference, thankfully, were not killed or were they, you know, injured in any way. But it just is such a reminder that these individuals that we are helping to learn ministry skills and going alongside of and teaching are living in the trenches in ways that we can't even imagine. It's been going on for years now. And, um, you know, for the most part, it seems things are winding down. Matter of fact, uh, several hundred um, Syrian refugees left Lebanon over the weekend to go back to Syria. But here, ISIS just came in and just randomly killed several hundred people. So we need to be praying for them. I want to just ask that you would. Today's a special day. I'd like to ask if you would be praying throughout today because what happens, these young Syrians, they have to get across the border from Syria to get into Beirut, Lebanon. And so they have to go through border control. Every time we hold these conferences, some of them get turned away. So there are about 20 that are trying to make their way into Beirut. Probably right now as we speak, the conference starts tomorrow morning. But with the time difference, it's probably right about now they're hopefully gathering in Lebanon. So let's be praying for them, and let's be praying for ourselves as we open up God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to have our own people serving you all the way over in Beirut. Lord, it's such a um, foreign um, place to us. Uh, we think of what's been happening in Syria for years now. Father, I think of these families who have lost loved ones in the last few days out of just a, a random act of violence. Father, I pray for healing. Lord, we pray that in the midst of these tragedies that are just happening, Lord, that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up. We pray for doors to open, for the church to show love, for the church to come in and preach a message of peace. And Lord, I pray that the church in Syria would flourish. God, we pray for those individuals who are trying to make their way to Beirut for this training conference. Father, open up the doors for them to get there. I pray for all the logistics of border crossings and all that has to happen, and I pray for their safety, and I pray that this would be a wonderful week of ministry and training, and pray that our team would build wonderful relationships with these 
individuals and that we can be encouragers of them in the midst of a very difficult time for them. Father, strengthen your church in Syria and in Lebanon. And Lord, as we here open our Bibles this morning and we study your word together, Father, I pray that you would grow us in our understanding of your word, that we would grow in our understanding of you, and Lord, transform us to help us to become more like Christ through this time together. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after spending the recent months in the book of Numbers, um, we're now moving out of Numbers and we're beginning a, um, a kind of a short four-week series. If you remember, before we got into Numbers, we were going through our statement of faith in a series that we called Rooted in the Faith. And we're picking up again today. We went through about half of it already last year. Um, today, we're going to pick up on the doctrinal statement position of the church in our statement of faith. And I'm going to put that on the screen for you. And you'll notice as you look at the screen, the top half is in black, the bottom half is in white. The only significance to that is that I'm choosing to focus on the top half this morning. So that's why I colored it that way. But um, let me read this to you. It says, we believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, as you look at that, I'm going to um, put something on the screen here, and you'll notice that on the screen, I've kind of highlighted and underlined several sections of it, and I just want to give a brief kind of buzz through of this before we get into the book of Acts to take a look at the church. But what we'll see here is says, um, the true church. Well, basically, the true church, as a saying, is the church is formed under the headship of Jesus Christ, composed of individuals who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This designates the true church. Um, it says, comprises all who have been justified. Justified is a fancy theological word that just means that we have been made right with God. We're all sinners, and to be justified, it comes through faith in Christ, when you trust Christ, you are now justified, not through what you do, but through the righteousness of Jesus, you've been put in a right relationship with God. So it's all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, if you look at that phrase, by God's grace through faith alone, it's affirming that for your salvation, really, you bring nothing to the equation. Jesus does it all. All that you do is come in faith, and God himself is the one who then converts you from a sinner into a, in God's eyes, a righteous follower of Jesus Christ. It says through faith alone, we just come in faith in Christ alone. There's no other way. It's only through Jesus. If you go back, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any other way is a lie. 
Jesus alone is who we can put our faith in. It says they are united by the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of diversity, beautiful diversity in the church. We come from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures and everything, but we are united by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God living in us is what gives unity to the church. We're going to see that in Acts, in the body of Christ. When we talk about the church today, we are not talking just about some organization like you can think of the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or whatever organization you may belong to. This is the body of Christ that has a whole spiritual realm and dynamic to it of which he is the head. Okay, we have last week we talked about in the numbers, we were talking about our leadership here and that was we are led by elders as a church. Well, our elders govern Riverstone Church but Jesus Christ is the head. And it goes on. It's manifest in local churches. Okay, so we're going to talk as we look at um, the book of Acts. There's the universal church. I'll explain that later. There's the local church, which we happen to be one of. It says it's manifest in local churches. Lots of local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. Now, we at Riverstone Church, we have a membership class. One will be starting in September. It's for people if you want to become a member. You have to go through that class. As part of the class, we have people write out your testimony. Tell us how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll notice, it says it should be composed of only believers. It doesn't say it is composed of only believers. The only reason for that is we can't read what's going on inside of you. Only God knows who is truly saved. So as part of the class, you give us a profession of faith, and we believe that profession of faith. Now, can some people sneak under the fence? Probably. Um, that maybe they think they are saved, but they've never truly put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, that's our description, by the way, our statement of faith is identical. It is the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America, of which we are part. So this is what we believe about the church. I want to um, have you open up your Bibles, and if those who are distributing Bibles would distribute them now. Um, if you'd like a Bible, just raise your hand. And if you don't have one at home, please take this with you as our gift. Uh, we want you to, to keep it and have it. But we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 1 this morning. And before I do that, let me just give you a little bit of background. The beginning of the church is recorded in, the, in Acts chapter 2, which takes place just after Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, Jesus kind of, you know, we have a mission statement that we're advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. You see it on those um, banners. Jesus said about his own earthly ministry, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, if you ask me, Jesus did a pretty good job of that before us. But for some reason that only God knows, God chose to use sinful, broken, imperfect men to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ and to establish the church here on earth. Now, it wasn't the disciples, it wasn't those early apostles who started the church. God did that. God is the one who started the church. 
Apart from the Spirit of God, there would be no church. But for some reason, he chose to use these sinful men to get the church established here on this earth. And it's his Spirit living in and empowering those men that enabled the church to become what it's become and to transform the world. And that was all through the Spirit of God working through sinful individuals just like us. And it's up to us as well to take that baton of ministry and to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ, not in our strength. Just like those apostles, we are broken sinners. But it's God working in us and through us that will enable us as the church today to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ. And without the Spirit of God, there would be no church. See, we could take this building, we could take our pastors, we could take our Sunday school downstairs and our vacation Bible school and all of these things that make up Riverstone Church, and without the Spirit of God, we would not be a church. All that we would be is a house of cards destined to collapse. See, it's God's Spirit working in us and through us that enables us to be the body of Christ. So, as a local church, let's take Riverstone Church, as a local church, how do we know what we should be doing and how do we know if we're doing it right? Well, to answer that question, turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to drop, drop down to verse 8. The first account I composed, Theophilus, by the way, this is Luke that is writing this. He also wrote the book of, of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And now he says here, the first account, which he's talking about his gospel, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Well, so far in these three verses, here is Jesus after his resurrection, his earthly ministry is, is over. He was resurrected for a period of 40 days. He was on the earth before he ascended back up to heaven. That's what we're reading about right now. Let's continue in verse 4. Gathering them together, this is the apostles, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And drop down to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, Jesus, he gathered all of his disciples together, and he commanded them to stay in Jerusalem, to not leave until the, the Father sends what he has promised. And then what we see is we're going to look in Acts chapter 2 at what it was that he had promised but he predicted in verse, I think it was verse 5, he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, it's this baptizing of the Holy Spirit 
that fills these disciples with the Spirit of God and empowers them to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 8, take the good news of the gospel even to the remotest part of the earth. See, Jesus knew apart from the Spirit of God, they could do nothing. But with the Spirit of God, here's these broken, sinful men, and they're going to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the remotest parts of the earth. See, that is the amazing work of the Spirit of God. Now, as we think about this, without the Spirit of God, these, these disciples, you know, all they were, fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary men, but with the Spirit of God, this group of disciples of Jesus Christ established the church through His Spirit that transformed the world. And this is the same Spirit of God that's available to us today as well. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a, we were here at an annual meeting, and I was up front. We were doing some answering questions, and somebody asked the question. They said, Bob, you know, can you tell us from, like, what do you, to what do you attribute the recent growth of the church? And I kind of, without even thinking, I just answered God. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself when I said it, you know, that could sound a little sarcastic. I hope I didn't come across snarky in that response. But the reality is, the, it, it's God. See, we can't change one life. No matter how much we study to preach, no matter how much we rehearse our worship, no, how many, no matter how many leaders we train up, we don't have the ability to change one single life. God does that. But for some reason, God chooses to use us as the means to bring life change to the world. And that's what God has established the church so we as a church can transform the world through the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, if it weren't for the Spirit of God, we may as well just right now pack up all of our Bibles and just, and just we might as well go out to De Lorenzo's Pizza or down to um, the Continental Tavern or whatever and have lunch together because apart from the Spirit of God, nothing's going to be happening here today. You see, why not just enjoy a good meal together, right? But you see, with the Spirit of God, He is transforming lives. Not only up here, downstairs as well. Think of all those kids in those kids' classrooms that are hearing the Word of God. Think of how the Spirit is working in people's lives to just set off that light bulb of, wow, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And people are coming to faith in Christ. We're seeing marriages that were broken, brought back together. We're seeing healing of drug addictions. We are seeing different things happening throughout the church. It's not us folks doing it. It's the Spirit of God enabling us as sinful individuals to be involved in the lives of people as He is transforming lives one at a time. See, that's the, that's the, that's the church at work. And it makes us ask a question. Are we living Spirit-empowered lives or are we simply going about doing church? Are the ministries of Riverstone Church spirit-empowered? Are they being led by the flesh? See, that's a critically important question to answer. And you know what? I have to say this. If we're honest, and you say, are they being led by the flesh? Sometimes probably yes. I know my own heart. I know my own tendencies. 
I know for myself, there's so many times when things get difficult. What do I do? I work harder. And then I make such a mess of things that I say, oh, wait a minute, I should be praying. You see, don't we all tend to do that? But you see, what God wants, and if we're truly as a church going to be part of seeing God change lives, we need to be a church that's totally dependent upon the Spirit of God. Well, let me pick up here in Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, and we see the disciples, they're waiting for what God is going to send. And let's read verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, the disciples, they obeyed Jesus. They remained in Jerusalem, and here they were gathered on Pentecost, and all of a sudden in the midst, this, uh, this noise just erupted, and tongues came, these little flames of fire came out. Now, I am not in this passage going to be able to touch on speaking in tongues today. Just can't go there for time. But what is really significant here is that the Spirit of God indwelt those believers and they were filled, they were baptized with the Spirit of God. So that's the most significant thing in this passage. That's what enabled the church to begin in Acts chapter 2. As we were going through Numbers, do you remember we were looking at Numbers and they, they, they built the tabernacle out in the wilderness? And what happened? We had all of a sudden God, the Spirit of God, the glory of God filled the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle. There was the glory of God in that, in that Holy of Holies. And then remember we had, how were the Israelites led? By the cloud, remember the cloud of, of, of um, the, the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? See, God in all of His glory was on display. And what's amazing is that is nothing compared to what is happening today. That same Spirit of God is in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That is a much bigger display of the glory of God than what those Israelites experienced in the desert and back in Numbers. And we are recipients of that Spirit's working in us. Well, let's look. Now, the Spirit came in and filled the disciples. And let's take a look at the immediate effect that this power had. Oops, that was the verse I want. Verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Wow, what happened to Peter? Just weeks before, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times out of fear. And here he is, that very same Peter, standing up in Acts chapter 2, just weeks later, the crowd is gathered. He's in Jerusalem, the same crowd that was hostile to Jesus, and Peter stands up with power. And it just says in verse 14 there, it says, and raised his voice and he declared to them. You see, all of a sudden, Peter was filled with the Spirit of God, and he was boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to non-believers, a crowd of non-believers. 
See, that's the work of the Spirit of God. Now, I want to take um, a look here and just see what happens and see the result, because spiritual fruit just comes out of this message that Peter preached. And I'm going to drop us all the way down to verse 36 in chapter 2. We're going to read through verse 41. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Talk about boldness. Now he's telling the people, and by the way, all of you people, you crucified the, the Son of God. This is that same Peter. Pick up in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Well, we see here that what I, what I love is you see Peter's boldness, but what's most significant, it says that the hearers were pierced to the heart. You see, as a preacher of the word, that's, that's the greatest goal that you could have. The, you know, you, you shouldn't be up here doing this for people to be saying, oh, pastor, great sermon. What should, your, what should our prayer request be? Nothing about us, but that the hearers are pierced to the heart. And that's what happened. As Peter was preaching, the Spirit of God was alive in the people listening, and they were pierced to the heart. And then, I, I love the response. What do they say? All of a sudden, they recognize, wow, we just crucified the Son of God. What shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. See, repentance, when you say repent, there's, a, there's belief involved in that. So that meant they believed in what they were hearing. They believed that Jesus is their Savior and they were need, in need of a Savior. So they turned away from their sins. Let's say this side over here. Here's their sins. They turned away from that. They recognized, I need a Savior. And they turned and they looked to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. See, Peter's sermon pointed these individuals to Jesus Christ and in a powerful way, the Spirit of God worked to bring these people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to put a little plug in for August 26th, and what's the next thing? It says, repent and be baptized. See, I want to encourage you. We have a baptism service coming up on August 26th. And when you see in the, in the New Testament, when people came to faith, it says they believed. Most times, right after that, it says, and were baptized. And I want to encourage you, if you have believed in Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized... I want to encourage you to either come out to our baptism class next Sunday and commit to being baptized on August 26th. So baptism is, we're going to put the tank right down here, and as you get in there, you're saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. It's a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ. We would love to see you be baptized. 
See, that's what all throughout the New Testament, usually when they believe, it says, and they were baptized. But as we go through this, it says that 3,000 people that day, it says they were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? They were added to the church. They weren't added to, you know, Jerusalem Evangelical Free Church or the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. They were added to the universal church. And I'm going to touch on, well, when I say the universal church, what do I mean by that? Because there's a difference. You have the universal church and you have the local church. Let me read you a definition of the universal church. It's the whole number of redeemed, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, extending from Pentecost, which we just read about here in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 years ago, until the second coming of Jesus, which is still forward for us. It's still a future event. So it's extending from back then at Pentecost all the way to whenever it is in the future that Jesus comes back, consisting of both the deceased believers and the living believers from all over the world. So, the universal church. Peter was part of the universal church. These 3,000 that believed, they were in the universal church. Go back to the Reformation, and you have people like Martin Luther, and before that, John Calvin, and John Owen, and so many great saints of the past. They are in the local church. Believers, whether it's over in Syria, or in China, or Afghanistan, or Peru, or Yardley, we're in the local church if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So basically, it's all deceased believers from Pentecost all the way looking forward to the return of Jesus, those who are dead and those who are alive in that period of time. That's the universal, sometimes they call it the invisible church. So what we see is that these individuals, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they immediately became part of the church. Now, there is a difference between the local church, Riverstone Church, we're kind of in, the in that universal church, but we are a local church. Let me read to you a definition of the local church. A group of believers who meet regularly to worship God, like we're doing here today, through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from the Word of God. That's so we're doing Bible study here. We're opening God's Word. And to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll be doing that a week from today. And baptism, which we'll be doing in a month under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Last week, as I was finishing up the book of Numbers, I shared that we here are led by elders at our church. So, according to this definition, thankfully, we're doing pretty well because we do have duly appointed leaders. Um, I, I, let me give you a little bit of a preview, too, and a little bit of an announcement here. Um, we have our annual meeting coming up in September, and at the annual meeting, that's where we, we do our approval voting for, for new elders and new positions. And we have one elder whose term is expiring. Sadly, I can't believe um, I've been serving for six years with Don Cheney as one of our elders. Now, Don's six years are up. Our Constitution says you can only do six years in a row. But thankfully, Don will still be an elder because once you're an elder, as long as you're a member of the church, you stay an elder over the body. So he and I were just joking last week, and he's like, well, you're not, you're not rid of me yet. I said, Don, we don't want to be rid of you, thankfully. But um, we're going to be announcing too, and we're going to be voting on because we've nominated a new candidate for eldership, and that is um, Marty Brophy. 
And um, if you don't know Marty, you need to get to know Marty. He and his wife Sandy are members here for quite a while. And um, if you look at our mission statement, making disciples who make disciples, Marty's not here this morning because he's in Beirut, Lebanon with our teaching team over there today. Just a great godly man. I look forward to you getting to know him better. But we'll be, um, the congregation will be voting on approving Marty coming up in September. Um, But as we continue here, we see this model taking place, what took place, but I want to show you that there's a blueprint for what the church should be doing in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Let's pick up there. They, this is the church now, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we look through that, I mentioned a little bit of a blueprint for what the church should be doing. I'm going to give you three activities that were taking place here in this early church that should be part of the church throughout all of time. Bible study, fellowship, and prayer. Now, you might say, well, what about the Lord's Supper? It says they were breaking bread. I'm kind of sneaking that into fellowship, and I'll explain why in a moment. But you see, if we as a church want to be a spirit-empowered church that's impacting the world for Jesus Christ, these three activities are critical. Bible study, fellowship, and prayer. You know, if you were to look at the American church today, and I'm going to poke fun at us a little bit when I say this, You would probably think that the three essential ingredients for a church are PowerPoint, coffee, and small groups. You see, now, I'm saying in a laughing way, but we're using PowerPoint this morning. You know, if I were to say, well, let's go back 60 years ago, what would have been the mark of a church back then, the three activities that define a church? We probably would have said hymnals, potluck suppers, and prophecy conferences. Now, Um, We can have a little bit of fun with ourselves because you know what? Why didn't they have hymnals 800 years ago? They didn't have printing presses. So they invented printing presses, and what did the church do? They started making hymnals so they could sing the songs together, right? Okay, worship God. Well, today we have technology, and now we have PowerPoint where we can put it up on the screen. And I can just say 200 years from now, if Jesus has not come back by then, that they won't be using PowerPoint. There's going to be something totally different. You know, we can pick on ourselves for coffee. Well, you know what? We built a cafe, and now every Sunday morning, the Church of Africa is being helped because the coffee that we're buying is coming right from a church-owned coffee plantation, and the money's going back into the Church of Africa. And as we built this expansion, we put in the cafe, and now there's space where people can gather together and do what? Fellowship. And so these things, I'm making fun of them at the same time. They're very helpful. But what we have to remember is these are not the end in themselves. 
These are a means to the end. But the ingredients of Bible study, fellowship, and prayer should be within the church for centuries to come or until Jesus Christ comes back. Well, as we were um, talking about um, on Bible study, if we ask ourselves, how often was it that the church got together for Bible study? Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Continually sounds like pretty regularly, doesn't it? See, for us as a church, we need to make sure that Bible study is a mark of this church and that we're gathering together in all forms for the study of God's Word. See, we can do it in a large group context like this on a Sunday morning with we have preaching here. Um, we have some larger Bible studies that take place throughout the church. We also have small groups where people can study the Word of God in their homes with other believers. You can also study the Word of God just in relationships one-on-one. -on -one. You can study the Bible with a coworker. You can study the Bible in your home with your family. You can study the Bible with a friend, whatever it is. As a church, we need to be building, growing, and committed to studying God's Word. And it's interesting, it says that, doesn't say this, but the early church, if you read through the New Testament, they were so committed to learning God's Word and living it out. And folks, you cannot live out what you don't know or understand. And that's where Bible study comes in. You see, when we study the Bible, our goal should never be just to know God's Word. Our goal should be to know God through His Word. And we cannot know God apart from His Word. Because that's how God reveals himself. So we need to be serious about studying the Bible. It goes on and it says as well in verse 42, it says they were continually devoting themselves to, and then after the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. See, they were committed to relationships with one another. They were committed to being always gathered as a body, building each other up, living out. We get into the New Testament, we hear about the love one another's and encourage one another, pray for one another. They were doing that within the relational context of the church, and so should we. I mentioned, and it says the breaking of the bread. Well, as you see that, it says in verse 42, that's specifically talking about the Lord's Supper or Communion. Now, we do that monthly here at Riverstone Church, but there was such a relational element to the communion of the early church. See, we gather together, and sometimes we're a little too individualistic with our communion. And, um, and sometimes, do you remember back at Cairn, we had those little snack types? Weren't they terrible? Um, <laughs> I, I'm so glad. Terry Van Loo makes our bread for us every Sunday. I'm glad we at least move up to that. But in the early church, they celebrated communion in the context of a meal together. They were gathered together, fellowshipping, breaking bread, and remembering the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for us, when we celebrate communion, there needs to be that communal, that, that just really the congregational aspect that we are fellowshipping together and we are remembering the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I will say that I think the, the American suburban church we have a long way to go when it comes to fellowship. See, I, I, the church I came from, I think I shared this years ago, but the church I came from before here was up in North Jersey. 
And when I was up there, we started a Spanish congregation. So we actually bought a building about six miles away. And we had a Bible study that grew to about 40 people in Spanish. And they started meeting in this church. And it grew to several hundred people while in the time I was there. And I would go over on Sunday mornings. And I, I preached there through a translator. Or I'd go over and just do whatever we had to do. And, you know, they might, the church was supposed to start at 10 o'clock. They may not have started till 1030 um, cultural differences. There were people from almost every country in South America and Central America all gathered together, just a beautiful diversity of Spanish-speaking cultures. But I also say they, they weren't prompt on starting, but I will tell you, by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they were still there. It blew my mind. But they weren't in the here like listening to a sermon. They had a fellowship hall. They brought homemade tamales and empanadas and you name it, and they were gathered together, and they just celebrated all Sunday long. It was just a lot of good fellowship. You know how we, Mike changed things here for this service because he heard what I said in the first. You know how we greet on Sunday mornings and we kind of like turn around to the person next to us, good morning, good morning. There, you know, if you were preaching, it would take like 10 minutes to get everybody back in their seats because they're like over there and over here and they're talking throughout the service. We could learn so much from other cultures as to what church fellowship should truly look like. You know, it also says here now that they were committed to prayer. You see, if we want to grow as a church as far as our ministry goes and the impact on this world, prayer has to be foundational. If you look back to the revivals that have taken place in history, they were always accompanied by prayer. So as a church, whether it's here in our worship service, in your small groups, in our youth group, in our kids' ministries, prayer has to be so essential to what we're doing. Because remember earlier what I said, that apart from the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We cannot change even one life. So if we want to be making a difference for the kingdom of God, our church has to be a praying church. It says here, too, as you... Um, as we go on, you know, I'm going, to do, I'm going to go on. There's a word that they use in verse 43. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. What do you think that looked like? You see, I think we could probably on Sunday morning, we could bring in Barnum and Bailey Circus or Cirque du Soleil, have them perform up here on the platform. And you guys would be sitting there like, wow. And, you know, there probably would be a sense of awe. But I guarantee you that is not the kind of awe that's being talked about here in Scripture. You see, the awe that they were looking at here was not a man-made, man-developed sense of awe. It was an awe for the glory of God. Ted Tripp wrote a book, and in it, it's called, the book is called Awe. I'm going to read something to you in a moment from here. But Ted describes how our, all of our hearts, all of us, every one of us, are always captured by something. And sadly, it's usually not the glory of God. You see, God made us to be creatures of awe, and sin threatens to distract us from the glory of God all of the time. And much too often, we are in awe of something that is created rather than the creator. And Paul, in this book, describes something that he calls awe-wrongedness. He does A-W-N in capital letters, awe-wrongedness. And he shares and he says how, you know what, there's a constant battle going on between God and the things of this world for the affection of our heart. And that's an all-wrongedness. So, let me read this now that you know what that means, because it says, A-W-N, 
is why Jesus had to come. It is the core spiritual disease from which none of us can escape. It is the war of wars that none of us has the power to win. Why? Because that war rages and that disease lives in our hearts. Our only hope is for a rescuer to come and free us from ourselves. Thankfully, God, in awesome grace, commanded the forces of nature and ruled the events of human history so that at a certain time, His Son, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb, the King, would come and live the way we should have lived and die the death we should have died. In doing so, God made it possible for us not only to be rescued from our AWN and accepted into His presence, but also to become people who live in moment by moment awe of Him. Here's the good news. God's forgiving, rescuing grace is infinitely more powerful than the AWN that kidnaps the heart of every sinner. And that really is the best news. See, folks, if we want to become the kind of church that God wants us to be, He wants us to be a church that's day by day growing in our awe of Him and in the glory of God. And as we look at what I just read, Acts 2 describes the church as it was intended to be. But sometimes I think we put this early church up on a pedestal and we think they were perfect. And folks, they weren't. You know how I know that? They were made up of sinners just like you and me. They were far from perfect. All that we have to do is look as we get into 1 Corinthians and some of the other books of the New Testament and we see the jealousies and the gossip and the bitterness and the rivalries and the sin that, in, that was part of the church. Why? Because God chose to work through sinners just like us. And that's what the church is. Though we're forgiven, but the Spirit of God fills each and every one of us and enables us to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ the way God intended. And for us to be a healthy church, we really do need to be growing day by day in our awe of the glory of God. Now, verses 46 and 47, as we wrap up, let me put those on the screen real quick. In verse 46, it just says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. You know what that is? They were growing in unity. There was diversity. There were a lot of different cultures represented there. But it says they were in one mind. See, God wants us to have one mind focused on Jesus Christ. As we gather together as a church, if we could just come together around our mission statement, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples who make disciples, in all of our diversity, we could have one mind. And it says here in verse, well, at the, well, at the end of verse 46, it says, with gladness and sincerity of heart. You see, can you imagine what that looks like to the world? Who doesn't want gladness and sincerity of heart? And as we grow like that as a church, we become a light to the world around us. And then look what happened. Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord was adding their number day by day, those who were being saved. Every day, people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, a healthy church is a growing church. We don't have to become some big mega church to be healthy. That's not what God is saying here. But what we, 
is true, if we're going to advance the gospel and make disciples, if we're going to share our faith, if we're going to live spirit-empowered lives, healthy churches grow. Now, we could plant churches. We can be a sending church. That is one of our, we, I mean, we're actually, we're moving towards both of those things. But as we have people coming through this church, just picture somebody comes here and they're, they're with Bristol-Meyer or whatever. They're here for four or five years. We help them to grow as a disciple and we help them to live a spirit-empowered life. And then, you know, Bristol-Meyer just, you know, transfers them over to Arkansas. You know what we're doing? We're taking healthy disciple-making disciples and sending them to other places. Praise God. That's what we should be doing all of the time. That's a mark of spiritual health. Healthy churches are growing churches. The last thing we want to do is take the Word of God and hold on to it ourselves without sharing it in the world around us. You should be taking that Word of God and going into your neighborhoods, inviting people into your home, starting studies where you can draw people into. You can be opening up the Word of God at work and sharing the good news of Jesus. See, that's what healthy disciples do. I want to wrap up. I have to wrap up just given time here. But I want to just wrap up by sharing, we're starting two new things here at Riverstone Church to help us actually move forward in providing Bible study, fellowship, and prayer. One of them is called Group Connect. Group Connect is a brand new ministry, and um, thank you in the back, that's great. But you can see the logo here. We're going to offer it several times a year. It's a means for drawing people together to let them know what small groups are available at Riverstone Church. It could be a growth group for men and women. It could be a men's group. It could be a women's group. But people can come find out, oh, that meets on Tuesday nights. Or, oh, that's available in the morning. Or just whatever the group is, they'll meet group leaders. Group leaders, for this to become a strong ministry of our church, we need you there when we do a group connect. But what a great opportunity this is. As people come to Riverstone, we need to help them connect with places where they can connect and grow in Bible study, in fellowship, and prayer. Well, the first one's coming up August 26th, the same day as our church picnic. Um, it says on there, 11 o'clock, we're having some discussions about maybe altering that just a little bit. We don't know. But please, if you're not in a, a small group, come on out to Group Connect. The next one, um, we're starting a new ministry in, in I think it's early October, uh, where we're going to do a study of 2 Timothy. As, and it's going to meet right here at the church. And it's going to meet on Tuesday nights and again on Wednesday mornings. Um, it's going to be a large group teaching time. Pastor John, don't you love John's teaching? He's such a gifted teacher. We'll be teaching for about 35 minutes in 2 Timothy. And then we'll break out for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes into small groups with trained, equipped small group leaders who will facilitate the time and build fellowship within those groups. So that's coming up then. And um, on Tuesday nights, it's open to men and women. You can choose. Do you want a mixed men's and women's group, a men's group, or a women's group? And then Wednesday morning, it's for the ladies. So sorry, guys. And they'll all be ladies' groups. But what an awesome opportunity to grow in Bible study, fellowship, and prayer as a church. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the time we've had to gather together. We thank you for the witness of the church that we see from Acts chapter 2. And Lord, we know they're not perfect, just like we aren't. Help us learn to be a spirit-empowered church, ever dependent upon you and your spirit for the ministries of our church. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is 
to, to grow with one another, to encourage one another, and also for the privilege to reach out beyond our own church into the community and the world around us with the gospel of Jesus. Father, empower us to continue doing so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and have a great day.